Hi, folks. Steve Urban here, host of the RouterFlex podcast and founder and CEO of our day job recruiting firm, RouterFlex. We hope you enjoy this episode. And as a reminder, please subscribe to the podcast for updates and news. Finally, if you haven't already, check out the series of books we've published on hiring, interviewing, and overall career advice titled The RouterFlex Guide, available on Amazon. And now, a quick word from our sponsor. Most homeowners don't have the time or expertise to properly take care of their home, which causes costly issues to arise. That's where Cura Home Maintenance comes in. We're a full-service, routine maintenance company that was developed by a certified home inspector. Each quarter, we service our clients' homes following manufacturer's recommendations to properly maintain all the necessary appliances. We provide the materials and expertise to prolong the life of your property, creating a healthy and efficient environment for your family. From top to bottom, we'll maintain and service your home. To get started, we have a property inspection to determine what needs to be maintained, and a maintenance plan is created based on your preferences. From refrigerator coils to filters, vents, and drains, we do it all, and we do it well. Contact us today for your free routine maintenance inspection and never worry about your maintenance again. Andrea Cooper on the RouterFlex podcast. Hello, Andrea. How are you? Good. Hello, Steve. I'm doing really well. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Same. Uh, impressive background. Love your, your career uh, progress. Your uh, LinkedIn profile is impressive. Um, congratulations on an awesome career so far. Uh, I, I was really impressed to see everything that you've done and, um, we'll get into all that, but before the professional stuff, I want to know about Andrea, the person, give me, where'd you grow up, parents, siblings, give us some, some personal stuff if you don't mind. Totally. I love that we get to talk about this by the way, because so often it's not even part of like what we talk about at work, but it's so important to like, you know, how we show up at work. So anyway, thank you. So let's see, I am from Kentucky, um, from the central part of Kentucky near like horse country. Um, I'm the second of five kids. Um, My my parents um, started very young in high school, as a matter of fact, um, unexpectedly so, and went on to have five children. Um, My mom and four siblings are spread out. Some still in Kentucky, uh, one in Texas, one in Arkansas. I'm in Madison, Wisconsin. Um, so we're all pretty spread out, but super close. Um, you know, we we talk all the time, we text all the time, we try at least a couple times a year to get together with all of our kids and significant others and all that. Um, so the you might wonder like why didn't I mention my dad? So um, my dad is in Kentucky still, but he um, he struggled with mental illness for many years. Um, uh-huh. So not as like present as a father figure so much, but definitely obviously an important person in my life. And um, certainly I know we'll talk about what I do in my day job later, but um, certainly influenced, you know, what kind of brought me to this space of, of mental health and things we can do. Were um, your mom and dad divorced early on? Or are they divorced now? Or what was the timeline there? Gosh, we could go like, I'll be really high level, but we could go, it could be really a long story. Um, so no, my parents were married uh, 21 years. Um, so from the time my mom was 16 until what, whatever that is, 37, um, uh, her, my youngest brother was six and a half. I think at the time I was 17 when they got divorced. Mm -hmm. Um, so very long time. We grew up super religious and part of the kind of 
undoing of that was um, my dad actually got excommunicated from our church. Um, and again, this was all before he had this mental health, mental illness diagnosis. Um, oh, this is before, this and, is before that. I see. What, what, right. was, what, what faith was this? Do you mind me asking? What faith? No, I don't mind at all. So no, the Mormon faith or the Latter-day okay. Saint. Okay. okay. Um, right. And yeah, so my dad um, was diagnosed at 40. This really was all of this falling apart that led to him getting diagnosed through placement in a psychiatric hospital. Lost his job, Ooh. lost his vehicle, like everything fell apart um, for him. It was tough. Lost, lost his wife, lost his job, got went into the hospital, uh, yeah. got kicked out of the church. Yeah. Oof. Oof. Oh, man, that's okay. That's tough. Uh, is your dad still with us? He is. He is, but um, still very much struggling with mental illness um, and other physical things. So he's around, but not, he's more physically around, I would say, than emotionally or mentally present. How's your mom doing? Thriving. She's great. I have a wonderful stepdad. My mom still works full time. She's adventurous. I mean, she's great. You know, that's the benefit of starting young. I hear having children because yes. by the time my mom was, you know, let's see, 48, which is my age, by the way, by the time my yeah. mom was my age, all her kids were in college or, or married or out the door. <laughs> so <laughs> there's a benefit to that. There is, you know, uh, I grew up in Oklahoma and they, uh, they, uh, have kids young there too quite often <laughs> yep, yep. yeah so uh, i was like almost 30 when i had my first which is like how old my mom was with her last her fifth so it's just funny how that happens um but yeah so my wife and i have three boys um so we have an 18 year old a 15 year old and a 10 year old cool. um yeah and we're a blended family so my ex-partner and i were together when i had my first two boys so she's been present we've been uh, you know like not as a couple for Oh my goodness, many, many years, probably for 15 or 16 years, but she's always been um, a co-parent. I see. Um, so we have a really kind of unique blended family. We we tend to do things like big family trips together. You know, we my wife and I really believe that kids' experiences like that matter more than any kind of awkwardness or discomfort that might have caused for us early on. Mm. Um and now it's not even a thing. Our youngest son sees her, my other two sons, other mother, as just like an aunt family member, um, no confusion, and it works well for us. Are the two boys that you had with your first relationship, uh, are they adopted from separate families or same? Were they brothers? I'm just curious. Yeah, no. So that's a great question. So I actually, um, and if I go too personal, you just tell me. Ah, uh, but I, I love it. I appreciate you doing it. Yeah, of course. I actually uh, gave birth to all three of my boys oh, so um, using artificial insemination. So okay. through the doctor's office. Okay. Okay. Um, and um because of that, we used a cryobank. And um, so my it's strange. My oldest and youngest are full siblings, and my middle son is a half sibling. And that is just based on some donor information and some health things that came up and then resolved themselves <laughs> later on down the road. How's the third how's the third one the half? I don't understand how that works. How no, that the, work? the the middle. So my oldest son, um, donor, you know, got pregnant, all that. Okay. Um, when I went to get pregnant the next time with my middle son. Um, the cryobank informed me that there were some <clears throat> like genetic issues from another woman who had used that donor. So we decided to like use a different donor. I see. Um, which oh, caused. I see. So oh, then okay. fast forward a few years, my wife now um, tried to get pregnant, really wanted it to be um, biologically related. I and see. the first donor was the only available option. So we just decided to try it and chance it. Sadly, her fertility issues did not let her get pregnant. So then I just 
got, I said, okay, that's something I'm pretty good at. C clearly a mother who got pregnant at 15, you know, like <laughs> fertility is not a particular challenge for me. So anyway, that's why it's kind of unique that, that my first and my youngest are full siblings. Um, you wouldn't know it. They don't even realize, I mean, they know it, but they don't think like that. You know, it's like we're all just brothers, but it's fascinating as a parent to see, you know, my, my, um, my middle son is a six foot redhead and my oldest is like a five foot six blonde. You know, it's just fascinating, just the physical differences. And then there are absolutely personality differences that are clear to me, genetically related. <laughs> So and how, how old are the kids again? How old are so they? So my oldest is 18. He'll be 19 in a few weeks and then 15 and then 10, almost 11. Okay. And is the 19 year old, is that first year college or senior or where, where are they at there? No, he uh, hated school more than just about anything else in the world. He's a musician. He's very creative. Um, but so he's in the process, fingers crossed, of um, becoming an electrician apprentice. Um, so that's, awesome. that's that his is plan. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let, let's just take a pause right here. So we could do, I could do a whole episode on this because uh, being in the recruiting space and just watching everything that's going on, I've done lots of episodes on this lately, this topic. I really believe, and we're recording this for the listeners, by the way, on October 17th, 2023. I think trade skills and blue collar jobs are the safe route right now for young people, especially at 18 and 19 years old. Uh, I, I'm just telling you, you know, anybody working on a laptop is in more danger than the electrician or the welder. Guarantee it. <laughs> the way AI and tech is uh, advancing. Uh, listen, this fascinating interview with Mark Andreessen, who is one of the founders of LinkedIn, was being interviewed by Joe Rogan. And uh, Andreessen was saying, he's like, isn't it interesting? 10, 15 years ago, we thought that the physical robots were going to Replace, yes. the, replace the blue collar workers and the white collar workers were fine. Now it's the white collar workers that are nervous and the blue collar guys are like, yeah, we're safe. <laughs> so, so my point is, my point is, I think that's a great move on your son's part because um, I think we're a long way away from a autonomous physical robot that can do what an electrician does and figure d different things out uh, on site. I, I, I just think we're way away from that. So anyway, great move on his part. Good move. Yeah, despite what the Jetsons just like taught me to believe as a kid, just saying, <laughs> you know, like where's my robot Butler? Yeah. Um, right. Yeah. So no, I agree with you. I'm proud of him. And you know, the thing that's interesting is like, he's very passionate about it being a unionized apprenticeship. Yeah. Um, and so by doing this, if he gets all the way through the process, you know, it's four years, 8,000 hours, and he's paid the whole time. So this, the time to do it is the exact same amount of time as a college degree, but no debt and making money along the way. So I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm excited for him. I think oh, it's great move. Yeah. He's not a sit in front of his desk. I mean, he hated it through 12 years of school. Like I can't imagine him choosing a career that would require the same. So um, I think this okay, is very now, now I want to ask you, let's go back just a tad here. Um, were you a good kid? Were you straight A student, good kid, church every day? Because you were part of the, you were Mormon. So were you like straight, straight arrow or did you venture? Mm -hmm. Did you, did you like have any rebel in there? <laughs> I was pretty straight arrow. You know, I was kind of like predictable in that way. I was um, in Girl Scouting, which um, might make you think I'm even more of a straight arrow, but I would tell you that the the church I was part of didn't necessarily, they loved the Boy Scouts, but didn't necessarily encourage the Girl Scouts. Okay. Um, Girl Scouts is a pretty empowering organization for women and for girls. Okay. Um, 
So it was really, I'm still actually, I'm on a Girl Scout board now. I'm really passionate about like the work okay. that Girl Scout does. But yeah, I was pretty predictable. I great good grades. I would say if you ask my mom that question, she would say Andrea always was um, like good grades, made good choices, but she was my most difficult child because she was always opinionated. I was always arguing with my mother, I was always challenging and debating. So I didn't break the rules, but I I challenged and pushed against them a lot, um, which made parenting me more difficult. But yeah, I was pretty, yeah, I mean, pretty typical. And, you know, even to, you know, like the thought of being married to a woman would not have occurred to me at that time in my life. Right. Like that was just, so By the way, when did you, when did you, yeah. When did you know, when did you know you were attracted to, to females and not males? Like when, when did that happen for you? Yeah. You know, it's a good question. I have, you know, friends in the LGBTQ community and they all have like their own answer. Yeah. Um, I get, I get different. Every time I ask this question, I get, I get yeah. a wide range of answers. Yeah. I, there's a, when I knew and when I became consciously aware, I mean, like there's the, the feelings were probably there since teenage years, Okay. but the conscious awareness and the conscious like choice of like, I can actually live me like the way I want. I was mid twenties mid 20s uh, because yeah. um now i i'm totally ignorant to the mormon church rules so i'm gonna ask dumb questions here i don't mean to sound like an idiot because I, I don't know all the rules but uh is that in today's world is that, is that cool or is that like frowned upon or what 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 what's yeah what what happened <laughs> i don't even know generally quite frowned upon i think in the Still, last, even now, today even today well i think in the last year or so there's been a shift because of a lot of you know like pushback so I think it's getting better now. I mean, I haven't been in the Mormon faith for a really long time. You know, I was, you know, like probably since I was a senior in high school. Did you bail? Um, did you bail because of that? No, no. I bailed because after my dad got excommunicated, the rest of my family kind of was like, okay, we're out. I and I continued to go. Um, okay. My older, it's funny. My older sister was married at that point. Um, so she was kind of, she stayed in the church the longest, um, but even she down the road chose to leave. So I think it just, it, it started to be this, like, uh, I had more like self-awareness and more like, you know, when okay. you become like early adulthood, right. I was just like, this doesn't align with who I am. And yeah. so no, it wasn't anything to do with uh, the lesbian thing, but certainly, um, would have been a pain point if I had stayed and then had that experience as a member. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Curious. Interesting. Okay. So did you know, I mean, I noticed you majored in uh, social work at, at Kentucky. Yeah. What that was driven, I mean, I'm assuming all that was driven from not only who you were becoming as a person, but your dad's uh, challenges. Is that is that accurate? I think that's a really fair. And I, so I think between my dad's um, mental illness and those challenges and my like passion around Girl Scouting and doing things that I had this like feeling of wanting to do something that really had like purpose and meaning. Okay. And, and that felt like a good fit for me. Um, yeah. it was yeah. a good, it was a good plan that went awry. Like many of my plans. <laughs> uh, did you go to the basketball games at Kentucky? Were you in the, I did go to some, um, those are so fun. I love Kentucky basketball. So fun. Crazy. Those, those students, man, were you like down in the student section, like right there? I mean, man, I, some of those games, it's like, I don't know how they get all those people in there. You're just squeezed in there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You gotta make the most money, right? Like, <laughs> It's fun. Was that did now did you venture out in college? Did you have a good time? Did we did you did you finally party a little bit or were you still no. like no? Ah. No, it wasn't because of the good girl thing. This was more I worked full time and oh. I went to school full time because I was, you know, like I don't come from any kind of financial stability. And when my parents um got divorced, my mom was like a part-time bank teller, still with four kids at home. 
How'd so, you pay for, how'd you pay for, oh, you, you just worked through school and took loans out? Or I worked what? at school. I got uh, in school loans okay. um, and, okay. you know, a few scholarships here and there. I just kind of pieced it together, really. Okay. Um, okay. So I worked. So I didn't get to do some of that, like, kind of typical college thing. And that's ultimately what led me to drop out of school at that point. Um, oh, that's yeah, right. You'll need, I was, you okay. Yeah, yeah, I was working at Walmart full time, going to school full time. I was getting ready to do what they call a practicum in my social work degree. And it was going to require me to to volunteer to get those that credit hours and then I had to go part-time at work. And I'll never forget that conversation with my store manager. I was like, hey, remember I'm going part-time really soon. I because I was a supervisor role. And I'm like, hey, you know, you've got to find somebody to replace me. And he said, I remember him saying, how much money are you going to make when you're a social worker? And I was like, I don't know, like 16, 17,000 a year. And remember at this point I was making like $5 and 40 cents an hour. Right. So right, like yeah. that felt like a good move up. And I'll never forget. He said to me, well, you know, if you went into the management training program, by the time you're done, you'd make 29.5. And I remember calling my mom when I got home and I was like, because granted, I didn't have a cell phone then, right? Like this was my early twenties and I wasn't, I didn't have enough money for a cell phone. So I called her when I got home and I'm like, oh my gosh, can you imagine making $30,000 a year? And, um, and she, I remember her saying, well, you know, I do what you think is best. She said, but just realize that no matter how much you make, you tend to adjust your lifestyle accordingly. No doubt. And I'm like, no way. $30,000. Oh my gosh. So um, I quit school and I became an assistant manager trainee at Walmart. Um, did you start out as a cashier? Did, were you, would you start out like a stalker or a cashier? How'd you, what, yeah. what was your first? Yeah. Okay. My first job was sales associate. I worked in boys department, like repackaging underwear and stuff. Love and then, yeah. So, Great story. Um, so yeah. So I did that um, for gosh, two or three years. I'm trying to remember now. I thought it was the worst decision of my life at that point, right? Cause I'm like 21, I'm an assistant manager. I'm supervising people that are significantly older than me in many cases. So my confidence and my assertiveness lacked a lot. <laughs> I and I um, I was supervising areas, like my mom, she would just crack up. She's like, I, I had like sporting goods, hardware. And like, I, I'm a vegetarian just for, as a side note. And I was carrying back, out- like, Back then too? Back then? Yeah, back then, for, oh, back oh, since I was 17, so like 30. Oh, I see. Okay, all right, all right. Yeah, so like my mom, she's like, you're carrying out muzzle loaders during like muzzle loading season. And, you know, like I was, it was just so out of, I was mixing cans of paint and yeah. I had to work overnights, you know, unloading trucks. And I, I really worried I'd made the worst decision of my life, um, mm. all for money, which, you know, my mom was right for her usual. It's like, well, $30,000 doesn't actually feel like that much now that I have a car payment and exactly. <laughs> a better apartment and, you know, all that. Um, but I remember like going to this leadership training class and, and I remember watching the trainer. It was really good. It was like one of the, those like bright spots in 70 hour work weeks that were really hard. Yes. And I'm like, I want that guy's job. I want to be that guy. And so I went to my district manager and like, it took me about a year, but I navigated my way through. And that's what ultimately what I, how I got into HR was as a, a regional trainer. I um, see. Okay. I didn't know right. HR was a thing. Like, I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. That was completely accidental. <laughs> Were you in Kentucky the whole time there or did they move you around? Yeah, that was, I was moved around in Kentucky, different parts of Kentucky and then different stores. And then when I uh, became a trainer, I moved to Asheville, North Carolina um, and supported like the region around like Eastern Tennessee, Western North Carolina, a little bit of West Virginia, kind of that part of the world. And at some point you, you said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and finish my degree somewhere in there. Yeah. Oh, so before that. Okay. So I was, I was a trainer. Then I decided I, the, I want an opportunity in the home office, kind of at Walmart, all roads lead to the home office in Arkansas. I've been and to, I've been there. 
I'm sorry, if you're from Oklahoma, you've probably been to Northwest Arkansas. Been, oh yeah, yeah. I've been to the I've been to the Walmart office and pitched to buyers. That's another that was in another oh. life. So yeah, I know the I know yeah. the building. <laughs> so, so I, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna take it was an HR generalist role that I, I moved to Arkansas for. I had the most amazing boss. He was he was my boss as a trainer, and then he moved to this new division, a global division, and that's how I moved to be an HR generalist. And it's because of him I finished my degree. So there's okay. a university that way ahead of its time, right? This was like in early 2000s before online was a thing. But what I would do is I would go once a week for four hours okay. um, at night. So from like five to nine. And then each module was like five weeks. So you just kind of intense classes. And that um, it took me about a year and a half and I finished my degree. Now, this is you finished your degree in 2003. You said your oldest is 18, 19. So right in here, when you yep. were finishing your degree, you had your first child or it's somewhere close, right? Yeah, um, yeah, I had finished. Um, and then I, I might have been pregnant a little bit, but I didn't have him until November of 2004. So okay. um, I can't remember if it overlapped, but it wasn't significant. Yeah, but I mean, hey, moving up, getting promoted, having your first child, getting your degree all right in there. I mean, that's good stuff. How Did, did you like living in Fayetteville? Um, I actually lived in Bentonville um okay. area so um, i mean i mean bentonville i meant to say bentonville yeah I, bentonville. Went I went to fayetteville for all the fun stuff right so yeah. like that's when <laughs> when i moved there is when i actually finally started to have a little fun went to the gay bar because there was a gay bar in fayetteville at that time okay, okay you know cool. that's when i like started having a little fun before kids but once i was there all right any um, any were you in a relationship at this point or no yes yeah this is this was my ex was, i was in a relationship with her at this point um when okay. we both moved to arkansas okay 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 yeah. right right Okay. Um, Very good. Okay. So you enjoyed your time in Arkansas. A little bit ahead of you know, time. It was, it was a good experience. Um, and the other thing that was fascinating that I never would have predicted is the, the job that I went to as an HR generalist was, um, a global job. So I, I did two stints in that global sourcing business, like division of the company and okay. moved up my career in that time. So I got to travel probably 15 or 16 countries, um, I just did a tremendous amount of, of international travel that I would have never even hoped or dreamed for that. Right. I absolutely yeah, good stuff. Loved. Good stuff. And you eventually spent almost six years at Walmart, I think. Right. Is that right? Oh, no, I spent 20, almost 21 years. It's, oh, 20... the, I, it was in chunks, right? So sometimes no, on my LinkedIn, that's patrol, right. it's like, that's right. I'm sorry. Yeah. It's like 20 years. I wasn't looking at that. Right. By the way, Senior Director of Global Diversity and Inclusion in 2014. I don't even remember diversity and inclusion being a big conversation in 2014. I, I, is it been, I mean, I know it's hot now, but and it's been hot the last couple of years. I don't remember it being like, I, I don't even know there were positions in 2014 with that title. You, you were like one of the first ones then. That was early on. Well, when you work for such a huge company, they often have to design those things before the average right like when you have a million employees in the u.s yeah you know, i think they yeah, kind of I, had to be ahead of it and yeah. and there are other reasons i think from a business point of view that they were on top of it but it was a great experience and it was it was really fun to get to like that was my last role at walmart so that was really fun like such a positive way to end my career there and why did it end <laughs> okay so um i was getting ready to turn 40 and, um, and I, I've joked with friends, it's like my midlife work crisis. I haven't had like a midlife, like personal crisis, but, um, my work crisis and 
I used to go on Wednesdays, I would meet a friend um, around four o'clock. We'd meet outside the home office building, which you've been to, and we would go for a jog around like the Bentonville Square and kind of, you know, around town. And every once in a while, she couldn't come. So I would just listen to my own playlist. And as I was starting to have this feeling, I looked up this song. I think, is it Tammy Wynette? It's, uh, I might be wrong on who. It's that My Give a Damn's Busted. You know that song? First of all, I'm impressed impressed that you know who Tammy Wynette is. That's that's pretty good. (laughs) I might have heard her, though, actually. I might be calling the wrong picture, but... This song is my my give it. It's something about like the the chorus is like I'm trying, I want to care, but now I got nothing, and that's kind of how I was feeling. I was kind of feeling like okay, I've been here 20 years, I've moved up, I've got to do a ton of really awesome work, but I don't want to be like this is my only job ever. And at some point, I'm worried that if I if I don't leave soon, people will think I can't do anything except Walmart. Bingo. Let, 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 yes, you know. yes, yes. Let's take a pause right there for the listeners. This is a good career advice tip. Yeah, for, right at 40 years old, uh, been there 20 years. Yes, as a, a former executive CEO myself and now recruiter for a living, I would have encouraged, I would have, if I were your friend at that point, I would be saying, okay, look, you are reaching a a turning point here where you're, you're either going to be stuck or for a long time and you may never get out of this situation or you should leave now. Because you're you're right there. Uh, de- I definitely agree. At 40 years old, because if you would have stayed until you were 50, let's say you would have stayed another 10 years and you're 52 and you tried to get out. Oh man, that's a whole different ball game, you know, uh, different different ball game. Because so many uh, people, I'd you we'd like to think that ageism isn't a, a, an issue when it comes to hiring, but it is unfortunately. And so many people that once they reach 50, they they have a hard time getting interviews, you know. And so it was a good move for you. My point is. Yeah, I just felt it. And and what's yeah. fascinating to me when I reflect on it, and because of this podcast, I like sat and really thought about this. Like what, you know, what has that move meant for me? Oh, you know, move. in the eight years since I left, it's yeah. like I learned a ton at Walmart, but I feel like the eight years has been equal to that 20 years. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's just weird to even like that doesn't make logical sense, but it's truly, you know, I think taking that leap and. And I, I chose to go, uh, the, the role I left for what got me to Madison, Wisconsin, was uh, a subsidiary of Amazon called Shopbop. And um, and I'm like, well, I work for Walmart. I'm going to go work for Amazon. I got this. Um, I didn't have it. <laughs> it was really hard. It was like completely jarring from a cultural perspective. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. I, I, uh, I really didn't go into it well-informed. I went into it with like, you know, like very uh, unrealistic, positive expectations. Um, But I'm also super grateful for it, right? Like I was there 15 months and the last six months was really hard. And um, I remember talking to my wife and trying to figure out like, I've moved our family here. Our kids are settled here. What do we do? My Mm. wife is a therapist, so she can, you know, really find a job just about anywhere. She's like those trade jobs, right? I think therapist jobs are similar in that there's going to be a demand and you can't replace that with AI. Yeah. but I was like the kind of the main earner. And so it's like, what am I going to do? Um, and I lucked out. I had made a really great friend who is a serial entrepreneur. And he's like, just go work for yourself. And he still will joke today about like my face just went completely just like pale. Like what? There's no job security in there. He's like, why do you think you have job security? Because yeah, you work. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Bingo. <laughs> yeah. So I did it. I did it. And it was so hard for about three years. I think three, three and a half years. I hustled and, you know, got clients and all that Walmart experience was tremendously helpful and being able to do lots of different HR things. 
but it got me exposure. It got me exposure to like small companies, startup companies. Which you needed. You I needed, needed it. it. That was good oh experience. Oh my gosh, I needed it. Yes. Um, yep. It was yep. like that overused term of drinking from a fire hose. It was like that in this yep. like software startup space. And I loved it. I hated the, the hustle for money. Let me just be clear. I hate like negotiating to make people pay me for certain projects, yes. but I loved the experience and the, I got this confidence, right? In like, I can figure this out. You know, I can figure this out. They've paid me to do this. They've signed this agreement with me. I got this. I'm going to go solve for this. And um, I didn't have that before. I, I would have reached out to the right person in the right department. And, you know, I would exactly. have met, but, you know, it was yeah. different. Yeah, great move again because now you have small company experience, entrepreneurial experience. And you just—I mean—it's a totally different world. Small business owners, entrepreneurial life, from where you came from, from Walmart. That's like Mars compared to Earth. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's like it's so a true. total different world. By the way, I don't know what the exact stat on this is, but I, I know rarely do people stay very long in the next job right after they've left a long-term job. It is yeah. super rare. Most of the time, it's like six months, year, year and yeah. a half. If they've been somewhere for 20 years, the shock to the system, uh, yeah. it, it's just very difficult for most human beings to get past that. I mean, you can look at LinkedIn profiles all day long, and if somebody's been, been somewhere for 10 or 20 years, the very next job, it usually it's short stay. It, yeah. it just it's just too it, it's just such a, a a jolt of change uh and it takes a while it takes a while to be like okay man this is a different life this is a different world and then you can then you kind of settle in you know as you as you as you move along so i wasn't i'm not surprised that the next one uh didn't last very long so let's uh now's a good time let's move into to talk space by the way for the listeners uh it is talk Talkspace.com. Talkspace.com is the website. Um, Andrea Cooper is also on LinkedIn with a bunch of followers. I'm sure she's she's probably picky about who she connects with, but if you want to connect with her there, you can find her. <laughs> um, and she's based in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm sure there's a million Andrea Coopers on LinkedIn, but if you search in Madison, Wisconsin, that's where you'll find her. So how did Talkspace happen? Talk, walk us through uh, how this how, how you got there and how, how that came to be. Yeah. So um, really quick, I left consulting, uh, you know, consulting, um, and you've probably experienced this in your career at, with the work you do. I met some folks from a company here locally that I'm like, and there was an opportunity with them. So this kind of consulting led to this uh, full-time opportunity. So I worked at a, a insurance and financial services company based here in Madison, a um, company called True Stage. And um, that I did that for about four years. And that was, it, it's funny to hear what you said is so true about that shift. This was like a foray back into kind of corporate space, okay. but in a different way. It was like 4,000 employees, so not like 2 million, you know? So it was like kind of this mid-sized company model. Mid yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and it was it was great because it was, um, you know, I, I would say I left that, that Amazon job feeling very low. I got back to a better place as a consultant, but I, I was, I mean, I'm going to be really honest. It's hard, you know, trying to make sure you have enough projects and, you know, like totally. clients, you know, and I've got kids in elementary and middle school and it was just overwhelming. So to have a little bit more of like a regular paycheck and like a leadership, I think that's probably beyond the like basics of money stuff. What really 
made me want to go back to a, a company is I missed people leadership. I love it so much. I love leading teams. It's like so satisfying and just fun. So yeah, and when you're, there, yeah. And when you're consultant, you're, you're, you're like a long ranger out there. I mean, you're, yeah. you're just kind of all by yourself. It can be very lonely. And uh, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but the other thing I wanted to say to the listeners, most consultants stop quit doing that because Chasing the next gig while doing the current gig is very difficult. It's hard to, it's hard to be like, okay, I'm going to be the tactical doer in this project, but somehow I got to spend a few hours over here chasing down leads for my next gig. When this one's over that, that wears people out. Most people are just like, "Ah, I just cannot do both of those. That's very hard. And that's usually why people stop doing it. So you uh, really get it. Like well said, I mean, that's exactly it. Very hard. I think yeah. someday I'd love to go back and do it again in a different way, right? I learned some like things that went well, but I think it just, I, I felt ready to get back into a place where I could work with the team. And, you yeah. know, I'm pretty extroverted and like, I thrive off of like the idea of working with others. And I really miss that. So anyway, okay. So I was at that job and I, I felt like, okay, I really, well, I probably said, you know, a number of things here were like by accident or dropping out of college or whatever. Like what I found over the years is I loved human resources. It felt like the closest yeah thing to that meaning I was looking for as a college student um, mm-hmm. in a corporate work environment. Mm-hmm. So I've been really thinking about like, I really feel like I want to make a plan to be a CHRO. Like I hadn't always been planful in like, what's the next role? I don't try to be too title oriented, okay. but there was something about the role of like being responsible for the full HR like strategy and implementation yep. that just really mm-hmm. appealed to me. So when this opportunity came, um, it felt like such, I, I don't, I don't want to sound like hokey, but like, it just felt like perfect. It felt like, here's my personal values. Here's me trying to like shake off my corporate suit for the last eight years. And here's an opportunity to be in a place that's not startup, but feels like startup and is okay. completely dedicated to, to helping support mental health and giving access to therapy. I mean, like, it fits you, it, it, fits, it, it fits you perfectly. I mean, your history, your family, your education, your, your jobs. I mean, it's like, I mean, if I was a recruiter and I found, and I, and I knew Talkspace was looking for this person, yeah. I would be like, right here, Andrea, she's perfect for it. I mean, it's, it's just- that's how it felt. I'm like, this is the job I've been wanting. Like, and I didn't even know it, you know, um, until yeah. like, that's an opportunity. How so. did, did a recruiter reach out? Was it a friend? Yeah. What was it? Okay. It was a recruiter. Yeah. Okay. okay. And I think Great. to your point, you know, on LinkedIn, um, I, you know, I think I have found LinkedIn to be very helpful in that way over the years, right? Just to be open to connections, just to be open to conversations. Even if it's not right for me, I might know someone in my network. You know, I really, you know, like just applying for a job and getting it are so like, I just think it's a lie, right? Like that's not really how it works. So I think (laughs) anything I can do to like help more people connect with each other. And in this case, it benefited me that I had a contact that knew of this opportunity. And they hired you in as a senior VP of HR, but then quickly they're like, "No, well, never mind. You're 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 head of all of it." How, yeah, you know, it was a big time of transition with Talkspace. You know, we had an interim. Our board president was our interim CEO at that time. Okay. There was a lot of transition since then. We have, you know, the it was a maybe it was basically the same time. Three months after I joined, I think, is when we got our current CEO. Okay. So we got a permanent CEO and really did a little bit of org work. Um, that caused that change. Wow. Me. That's a lot of, okay. So brand new. So we had a new uh, captain right away in the CEO spot okay. and brand new head of HR. 
yep. right away. Wow. Yeah. That's some major changes for the organization for sure. Right. Uh, did that- and I wasn't uh, the only new executive. We had a new chief marketing officer, wow. a new leader a clinical organization. So we had a number of changes at that time. Um, and it's really cool now, like a little bit more than a year later to like see it come together in a way that is just, um, it's to me, it's just a beautiful thing, right? When you can see like a team of people start to gel and it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that we're perfect and that we're not constantly trying to be better, but it's like, there's this ability to kind of all be aligned on the same mission. Um, yes. It's really Which fun. you help set up, which you help set up. How, how big is company now? How many employees? We have about four, a little over 400 total employees. 400. And then we have over 5,000 therapists because most of our therapists are um, independent contractors. That's what I figured. Um, and we have about 220 that are employee therapists that are our W-2 employees. Okay. Well. Uh, is there an office in Madison or is everybody remote? What's the scoop? No, the, the, our, we actually headquartered in Manhattan. Um, okay. So we're in New York City. I'm there about once a month. And there's a lot worse places to have to travel, you know, like yeah, sure. directly from Madison to LaGuardia, easy peasy. Yeah. Um, but what I love about our company is, so our CEO is in New York. We have of the executive team, I think three are in the New York, but we have like Indianapolis, Kansas City, San Francisco, Phoenix. So our executive team is scattered across the U.S. And um, we really are committed to being, you know, a virtual organization. And we intentionally do come together, right? Like we as a leadership yeah. team feel like there's a lot of value in like in person. Mm-hmm. But on the day to day, we're all very much working remote together. Yeah. And all your contractors, all your therapists are all remote. They're, they're all everywhere. All, they're everywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. Yeah. And my yeah. team, my HR team, right? So I have the recruiting side of the business and, you know, we do the clinical recruiting as well as like the corporate recruiting and then the people operations part of it. They're everywhere. You know, like my team's all over and I love yeah. that. You know, I, I love that experience. It, you know, I think that's one of the things I'm grateful for Walmart because I led global teams many, many years ago. I got very comfortable with this idea that I don't have to see somebody to know they're doing good work. Yeah. Um, I don't have I'm to with- sit with them. And so for me, it's like, I love it. I'm what yeah, I'm way past that. You know, I, I ran a couple of $40 million companies as a CEO before I started RiderFlex. And uh, now with our contract recruiters on our team, I am, man, I used to be uh, a very suffocating, demanding boss, but I, I have just matured and gotten older. And now, now I'm like, look, I just tell them, I'm like, look, here, here's the deal. Just make sure the client's happy and fill the position. I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm not going to call you and ask you how many emails you sent today. I'm not going to just, if you're making my client happy and you're filling the positions, I'm going to give you more assignments. So I, to your point, the body of work, it's not, I'm not tracking your minutes, uh, how many times you're moving the mouse. So this is like, if I feel like your body of work is worth, is matching what we're paying you. That's all I care about. I'm not going to micromanage the rest. Amen. <laughs> And I think, you know, people leaders are all in different stages of that like journey, right? I think some leaders have a harder time than others, but I think that, that, you know, the last few years has, have forced this topic, I think to, um, for people to have to come to terms with it Yeah, Um, no doubt. to be selective about like, there is value to being together with people in real life. So like, what is that? Where do you find that value? And that value is not found in all the things you're describing, right? Like of like, well, who's sitting at their desk and what time did you get in and what time did you leave? None of that matters. No. Um, it no, never did. <laughs> no, it never did. Uh, give us the talk space overview real quick, um, just so everybody knows uh, what you guys do and you know what you provide. Go for it. Yeah, totally. So Talkspace is an online mental health company. 
Um, we provide therapy. And really, our, our mission is to provide, you know expand access and make it um, make it available for people to have access to therapy. Something that makes us, um, I think, we're fully virtual, right? So um, we do not have any brick and mortar brick and mortar offices. Um, our therapists meet with the clients in different ways, right? So we offer different programs like or different options like um, video, live video, which a lot of people, you know, obviously this world of zoom, we've all kind of gotten adjusted to something that I think um, makes us especially unique is our asynchronous therapy. So our ability to provide texting therapy, um, with a licensed clinician, um, you can send audio messages and text messages, um, and you'll get responses. Um, it's not that you have to wait like for your appointment to be able to have communication with your therapist. So I think one of the things that um, my middle son actually uh, chose the texting only program, like option, because we have different packages, right? So he chose texting only, and he's like, I don't need to talk to someone. I just want to text them. Um, and sounds he, like a sounds like a Gen Z. Totally, absolutely. <laughs> but but at the same time, think about it. You know, and I'm not going to be nosy and ask you if you've done therapy, but I have. And yeah. there's times that you know, like you're in a moment, right, of anxiety or worry or trying to process something. And that moment passes before your appointment. And so in this beautiful moment, you can message your therapist and share like a big aha or ask for I guidance. Or, you know, I there's see. such value yeah. in that. Mm. Mm. Um, so it's really, mm. we do research as well. So like, you know, we do like evidence-based research. So honestly, asynchronous and live video, um, really the the evidence shows that they're, they're pretty much equally effective um, at therapeutic I- outcomes. What uh, percentage of your, uh, do you call them customers, clients, the patients? Okay. What percentage do video versus phone call versus text? Do you know? I don't know off the top of my head, but I'm going to follow up and find that. Um, You know, a lot of them do a blend, right? So they may do like a live video session a week and then they'll do texting throughout the week. I see. Um, uh, and and I, so I think my son, to your point, might be a little bit more of an outlier in, in or more generationally aligned with just texting. But I would say um, a lot of our members are really taking advantage of the option to have video sessions as well as, you know, maybe you're in the car and you want to, you have this thought or this, you know, like something you want to talk about in your appointment to be able uh-huh. to send an audio message to your therapist on the app is really powerful. Um, so being able to have that you know, the different modalities, I think, is what makes us um, special for our, our members. I would sure. I would think I, I'm not a doctor or a psychiatrist, but I would think that if I was having a session, so to speak, I'd want to see the patient's face. Right? I'd want to see their facial expressions, I think, wouldn't I? I don't know. I, you know, I think that that's the beauty of like diverse approaches. Right. I think it okay. depends. Like my son is more likely to be open in writing than he would be in person. If you saw his face, he's going to look very stoic and he's going to be very like okay. quiet and single, yeah. you know, like one syllable responses. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. if you were texting with him, you're going to get a lot more out of him. So I think it probably depends. Um, you saying mm-hmm. psychiatrist, the other thing that we have that I think is really great is we have provider, a provider network. So we have pr- uh, prescribers that, you know, let's say that uh-huh. I go to my therapist and they're concerned to have maybe depression or anxiety they can refer me to one of our prescribers to help if there's a need for medication to also be part of kind of my therapy experience. So making it kind of like a one-stop shop is something, um, if you've ever had to go look for that, it's, it can be time consuming. It can, you have to wait sometimes months for appointment availability to be able to really quickly. And I would say that's, that's a, the, the last thing I know that I don't, you don't want me to talk about talk space all day, but what I love is the matching algorithm that we have. In okay. that you put in, you answer some basic questions about, you know, as a, as a member, and then it will provide you options of who you can, who you've been matched with, who has availability. 
And so you can, you can be scheduling an appointment that day for the next couple of days. Like, you know, the ability to really quickly get connected to a therapist mm. is it's a game changer for people who need therapy. Yeah, um, no doubt. Can I, what if I don't like my therapist? Welcome to be, yeah, I don't like her. I don't you can totally like her. say that. You can say oh, that okay. and you can switch. You can, and, and again, if you, if you went to like the effort of like going through um, and, you know, finding a therapist locally, maybe it takes you a couple months to get in and then you don't like them. Then you have to kind of start all over again. Right. Yeah, so very for handy. us, it's definitely possible to change. Um, and we accept many insurance, you know, like pro- we partner with providers. So in many cases, you may just have a copay, just like you would if you went to somebody locally. So we try to make it, again, it's access. This idea of helping like people heal and having access is just something that we really believe in. Is the cost on average comparable to others, your competition? Is it, are you yeah, average yeah. price? Are you, okay. okay. We started as a more of a, a consumer-based product and we still absolutely have that offering where if you just want to go pay, I think it's, I think on average, I, I don't want to quote it because I can't remember, but if you want to go pay like a monthly subscription to have access, uh-huh. you can do that. But what we're seeing is a big shift to going through providers. So okay. in our sign-up process, it asks you to find out, it asks you information so it knows if you have coverage. And okay. so then it can be able to tell you, oh, you know, you've got a $25 copay or you've got a $20 copay. Mm-hmm. So you kind of mm-hmm. know going into it, whether it is going to be covered through your insurance. And what about this question? Now, I don't want you to bring up competitors, but um, there are other people doing this. There's other companies doing this. What makes Talkspace different or unique or you know, compared to what others are doing? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, in my mind, um, you know, my opinion, there's a couple of things. I think it's that our commitment to like quality licensed therapists, right? So really we're not, um, it's not a, a ding on anybody who's doing coaches or anything like that, but really we are working with those that are licensed practitioners Okay. Um, with, you know, experience and expertise. Um, I think that like the, the different modalities of being able to engage, whether it's text, audio message, video message, I think that flexibility and the quick matching um, based on your needs. I think those are things that really make it a a really good experience um, for our members. What's the most common type of patient? Depression? uh, Depression. Yeah, I'm just curious. I, well, I, I actually spoke at a women's conference recently, so I don't have like our overall most common, but I think I can answer it um, in this way. So what we find is that, you know, the majority, not like vast majority, but the majority of our members are women. Is that because men are too macho to, to go to a session? There's probably more of a stigma for men still yeah. than women. But it's, it wasn't like a vast majority, right? It wasn't like overwhelming, but it was definitely the majority are women. And so within that space, to your question, the kind of top two um, diagnoses were anxiety and depression. Um, okay. and, and then, there, you know, there's others that follow very close behind, like, you know, work stress, um, you know, like maybe trauma and things like that. But really the top two most common were depression and anxiety. And what if about- you find like post-pandemic, anxiety has become so much more of a concern, um, what about what about real mental illness like bipolar people and things like that like well i think that in some cases those that are more you know sometimes it you need inpatient sometimes you need in person so we absolutely are responsible about making sure that we can provide the right resources and support so um if it's not a client that we feel like we could help we would certainly refer them um we wouldn't take on you know but yeah i think it would depend right so going back to my dad where we started the um he's bipolar um, but he refuses to take medication. He refuses therapy. They all do. They all do. I, I don't know. I don't know a bipolar person that wants to take their medication for long periods of time. I've never met one. 
they all take it. They all take it for short periods of time and then they stop. Every one of them. So, yeah. So I think if you had someone who was willing to engage in that way, then probably we could, you know, provide good support for them. But if it's someone like my dad, I don't think it would be a lot of benefit okay. for something that doesn't have more compliance in those types of things. My first wife was, uh, is, uh, is bipolar. And so wow. I lived, I, li I lived it. Yeah. It was, yes. it was a complete nightmare. Uh, but that's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> another conversation for another day. Yeah, another another podcast. Uh, very good. I, I love the fact that you can get in quick and you can match people. You can switch your 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 caregiver if you want to, or switch switch your psychiatrist. Yeah. You can text quickly. You can now when you when you text or call, it's not scheduled. So what is it? Does does it hit the uh, the psychiatrist? cell phone and they text back how does that yeah, work? yeah. so it's all through our app and okay. um, and so think of it as like a virtual therapy room that you have you have okay. a, excuse me a steve room right with your therapist okay. so those messages and that communication all happen in that room um and so our therapists know that in addition to their video live video sessions that they engage in the other communications that come into those therapy rooms to provide the therapy in that way so that's part of kind of how they manage their role do you have a special uh, group for CEOs? Because <laughs> see, see, most CEOs are secretly lonely and stressed because they, they, you know, for you for all the reasons job. you already know, right? They can't. They, it's a super lonely job, right? They can't. They can't talk to their teams about everything. Usually, their spouses are supportive, but can't truly relate to everything. It's a lonely little tiny island. <laughs> Do you have a special group? We don't have a special group for CEOs, but we do focus on teens. That's an area of focus for us. Oh, um, good. So like we definitely have good. areas of specialization. Good. And our therapists, to your point, our therapists um, are able to share in their profile, their their specialization, their expertise. So you may have some that specialize in LGBTQ um, population. So certainly I think you could probably find a therapist who had worked with executives and worked with senior leaders and who could push okay. back appropriately and provide the support that they actually need versus you know being intimidated by their role. So I think that's the value of 5,000 therapists, right? Like you can find different. Oh, skills. no doubt. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, I, I have a couple more questions. I know we're almost out of time, but I want to hit you with a couple more here really quick. Uh, the teens, you brought that up. That's such a big topic. We could probably talk for 30 minutes on that. Social media, yeah. Andrea, uh, uh, the, uh, and teens. <sighs> Don't you feel like social media is just... I think there's a lot of great things about social media, but my my personal opinion is like, if I had to rate social media's impact on society overall, I think overall it leans more on the negative impact, especially to young folks. There's some good things about it, but boy, a lot of it um, I think is causing young people to, you know more than me, but it feels like it's causing young people to to be depressed or have anxiety primarily because they don't think they're good enough or they don't, they, they're, they comparing see all, they're comparing right? constantly. They see all these, what they think is a perfect person and the perfect life and the, the whatever. And then they're like, oh my God, how come my life's not like that? Uh, anyway, I'm ranting for a second, but don't you think social media is a huge factor with some of these young folks? I absolutely do. And, you know, one of the tools we have, is called Talkspace Self-Guided. And so sometimes people aren't ready to engage in therapy, right? Like in that, in a, with a direct clinician. And so we have some self-guided things that include like group 
um, sessions, they can, they can kind of think of it like a webinar, like a therapeutic webinar. Um, yeah. but they also have journaling. So like it's prompts. And one of the areas is exactly what you're saying, like social media addiction and like, how do you, right. so I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that, um, it's hard because there are so many good things, right? When you think about like, grew up and like the lack of awareness I had around the, about the world around me is really sad to me. Um, yeah. and so that's a beautiful thing, I think, but there is so True. much negativity in it as well. So, and so much like false information, false me and, and mean the meanness, the falseness. I mean, the, yes. yeah, you're so right. There's a lot of thing. I don't have a great answer other than I think we're trying to acknowledge that and provide the support that we think teens could use okay. um, to help like acknowledge it. Cause I think that, um, I think some of them know, but it's also still like, they're just, you know, like here's my phone, you know, constantly. <laughs> We have a big time rule. Uh, when we go to, when my wife and I go to dinner, no phones. Like the phones, we don't, as soon as we walk into the restaurant, nope, phones stay in the pocket. And then I'll be, I'll be at a restaurant. You ever see, you ever see a couple at a restaurant yes. and they're having dinner and they're having dinner and they're just like staring at their phones and not even talking to each other. I just want to go over and say, like, what are you doing? Like, this is dinner. <laughs> like, like, we're texting each other. <laughs> what are you doing? I, I don't get that. Like, get off your phone. Okay. I know I want, I want to ask a question. I wanted to ask you about this one. It's kind of switching gears. I want to ask you this from a recruiter perspective, from a recruiting perspective, this is a topic that comes up often with my recruiters and the, uh, and the clients. So diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's in this, this, that, that space. What is your advice to hiring managers and or recruiters or both? that have a diversity goal or, or, or something they're trying to reach, you know, how do they get to their goal without discriminating against certain groups? Let me give you a real life example. So we get this all the time from clients you know, when they call us to do, they'll say, okay, I want, um, an African-American female for this job or whatever. And that's our goal. We'd really like to have that. And then of course our conversation as a recruiter is uh, I'm like, okay, so you want us to automatically discriminate against all the white males. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> Educate the audience here on how you can strive towards these goals without automatically discriminating against certain groups. Yeah. Well, Please. first of all, I think it's a really complex one, right? Like, I think there's not like, like most complex things, there's not like a simple, oh, just do this. I know, right? I wish. But what I've seen yeah. is that um, there's a couple steps in the process that could make all the difference. So okay. one of the yeah. things is like, if you think about it in terms of like sales or CRMs, right? You think about your funnel, right? So you've got all these potential clients in a funnel and you're trying to narrow them down to like your, the ones you actually do business with. Yeah. I think similarly in the recruiting space, right? You, if your funnel is diverse to start with, you, you're starting in a better place. So I think that like, yeah. that's such an important, like key thing. And that's easier said than done because yeah. most of us, when we go into LinkedIn and we look at our networks, we see a lot of people that look like us. Sure. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. one of the first things, if you back it up a couple of steps is like, how do you build diverse networks so that it's not fakey fake? It's not like, go find me this, you know, check the box diversity characteristics. It's like, I want some really great talent and I want to make sure that it's a diverse pool of talent. And there we you go. Gotta I like that. that language. Diverse pool. I like that. Yeah, I'm a big believer in that. Yeah. So I think it's the pool, like at the top of the funnel, that really that's like one really big step. 
The other thing I've seen, and this is where those concepts of like unconscious bias and, you know, like unintended discrimination come out is as you winnow down, kind of go down to the different like interview, like you do the, the candidate reviews, right? The resume reviews and you do the pre-screens and all that. What I've seen in some cases is that you could start with, I'm making this up, 30% diverse candidates in the funnel. You end up with very like single digits because they've gotten kicked out of the process in different steps. Mm -hmm. um, and so what it makes you do is go and look and say, do my minimum qualifications, are they actually legit? Right. So if you look at people of color, they often haven't had the same experiences for educational opportunities for the same universities. So if you really focus on like education and an equivalent experience, then a lot of times you can bring in a more diverse pool of talent. OK, good one. You know what I'm saying? Um, so it's not like yeah. I'm not just looking mm -hmm. for the Ivy Leaguers who did this and that. Those are great. But like, that's not all you want. So mm -hmm. I think it's again, it's like, how do you review to make sure you have fair expectations, you have a diverse pool and then your interviewers, right? How do you help them understand how they get to the information needed, right? That isn't just hiring people that look like themselves that have the same types of experience. And ultimately, if you do all those things and you end up with a white male, then you've hired the best person for the job, in mm -hmm. my opinion. Mm -hmm. Because that person presumably hit all those steps along the way as part of that diverse pool of talent. I think what happens is you see people fall out for not legitimate reasons, right? Like it's- you know, so I think there's if, if you build in a little bit more um, inclusivity in the process, then what I would tell a client is to have a to, you would commit to having a very diverse pool of talent. Very um, good. So. Very good. I think that's a great answer. Pretty solid answer. We could, by the way, you could come back on the show. We could do a whole podcast on, on that topic. <laughs> uh, good answer. Andrea, uh, thank you very much for sharing your story. Uh, telling us about Talkspace. Congratulations on your career, your family. Uh, sounds like uh, things are going very well and I'm happy for you. Very glad to know you. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. Super fun. I could keep talking to you for the next two hours, but we both have other meetings I'm sure waiting on us. <laughs>